chapter 25. Thank you. Thank you the righteousness of God I checked those words. and the mercy of God. Make sure to turn your mic off while you're back there. Yeah, make sure to shut that off. <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. Don't want to show you how the sausage is made. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Exodus chapter 25. We're going to be looking at the mercy of God, the righteousness of God built up in not only the tabernacle, but in the ark itself. And so this morning I'm going to read to you, starting in Exodus chapter 25, verse 10, and we're going to see what the ark teaches us about the Lord. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to, be, uh, to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings over, above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you for the opportunity this morning to be able to open your word and study it. God, I pray that what we see in this, in this text is... the beauty of Jesus, that he is the king, he is the one that we hope for, he is the one that we long for. And God, I pray that what we see is you've been showing us from the very beginning of your word, your beauty. And God, you show it in how you meet with your people. And so Father, this morning as we study, give us spiritual insight, give us wisdom, help your people to be fed by your word. God, I pray that they will not see me, they will see you and they will give you praise. I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for just a moment. So as we've been talking and working our way through Exodus, we've seen the people of God cry out to him, asking for deliverance from the Egyptians, that they might find deliverance from their bondage to slavery. 
And that God hears their prayers and he answers by rescuing them by the hand of the mediator who's given to them. His name is Moses. And Moses leads the people of God out after the plagues have been demonstrated, displaying the power of God over all creation, that there are no other gods but him. Then we see the people of God worship him on the other side of the Red Sea as God brought them through that body of water to demonstrate that he alone was able to rescue and redeem his people. And that if God was moving on their behalf, no one could stop them. And then we come to Mount Sinai. We looked last week at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words of God. And in that, God displays that he's entering into a covenant relationship with people like us. He's making promises to us about how he's going to care for us, how he's going to be our God, and we're going to be his people. But as his people, God calls on us to obey his voice and to listen to him. And so we get the Ten Commandments, which show us the character and perfection of God and how desperately we needed Jesus because we can't keep all the commandments as hard as we try. And now what we find is after God has delivered his people, after God has given Moses the commandments, we now find God asking them to build a tabernacle for him, a place where he will dwell. And in Exodus chapter uh, 25 and 26 and all the way up through 30, you actually see God describing what's going to be in the tabernacle, that the tabernacle is a tent. It's a fancy word for a tent. And while they're out in the wilderness, they're going to take this tent with them and they're going to put it up everywhere they camp. And that's a picture to them that God is with them. He's dwelling with them. That as they're in tents, God is right next to them. And so as God says that they're to build a tabernacle, a tent for him, we find that there's a very specific piece in the tabernacle that is focused upon and is primary. We're told in Exodus chapter 25, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twin linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary. Notice why he says, make him a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a tent. He says, that I may dwell in their midst. God desires to be with his covenant people. He desires to be with them. So much so, he's going to have them build him one to demonstrate how much he wants to be and is with his people. But I want you to notice that as the description of the tabernacle begins to be lined out, God doesn't start with describing how the tabernacle is to be built. Notice what he starts with. The Ark of the Covenant. Now that should probably tell us something, right? That when God sets out to describe the building of the dwelling place he's going to have with people, he doesn't start with the tabernacle itself. He starts with the Ark. That must mean that the Ark holds some primary position within the tabernacle area. So I encourage you to look with me, Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 10. Now, I know that for most of you, your idea of the ark comes from one place. Many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's where you get all your ark information from. 
right? The Nazis are out to get it. We got to get there first and grab it, right? And if you open up the lid, your faces melt off. Traumatized me as a kid, just so you know. Traumatized me. But that's the, that's the level of most of our arc knowledge, is that the Nazis are trying to get it and you can't look at it and can't touch it. But what we see here in God's word is a picture of the ark and why it should matter to you to understand what the ark was about. And so in Exodus chapter 25, when God begins to describe the tabernacle and the tent he's going to have to dwell with people, he begins with the ark. And I want you to notice the descriptions that he gives us. If you're taking notes, the first thing I would have you note is God's righteousness. Because what we see in these opening verses is the righteousness of God displayed to us in the ark of the covenant. Notice what he says in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit of a ha- and a half its breadth, and a cubit of and a half its height. Okay, so here is the ark, which is supposed to symbolize God's presence with his people. And I want you to note the size of it. Did y'all catch the size of this thing? Does, okay, two and a half cubits by one and a half. Does anybody know how long a cubit is? Simeon, you know how long it is? That's correct. From the tip of your middle finger to your elbow is about how far a cubit is, about 18 inches long, okay? So the arc is two and a half of those. And its width is one and a half. Okay, (laughs) if we're going to make a box that's supposed to display God's presence with his people, how big you think we would have made it? Right? Don't give it to Frank. Frank, for you already see what Frank does with trees for VBS. Frank will get you a big old ark. You know what I'm talking about? But if you notice that this, the dimensions of the ark aren't that big, it's actually a relatively small box. That seems odd, considering this is supposed to represent God dwelling with his people. Why do you think the ark would be so small? Say that again. Well, that's true. You see, Terry's thinking, coming off surgery, he's thinking that someone's got to carry that thing, right? It had gold on it, so it had to be heavy. It had gold on it. Why would you make it, why wouldn't you make it this massive, the size of the room box? Oh, look at our God dwelling with us. Well, that's true. People are going to want to worship the box. But, say that again. Well, he's not going to sit on the box, right? It's supposed to be a representation of him. But why so small? If you're going to represent God's presence, wouldn't you make the biggest? He is. Think about this. Think about this. Uh, If you see some massive thing, the first thing that draws to your eye is the size of it and its bigness. And you kind of lose sight of everything else because you're just like, wow, that's a massive thing, right? No? Y'all don't travel to see the biggest ball of yarn in the country or anything like that? Nobody's cool. Right? You're just like, oh, it's like you haven't seen yarn before, but it's so big. You're just like, ah, oh, it's a big. Now, now, Patty, Patty, don't, don't go stealing sermon ideas, all right? Don't, don't, don't go getting to the point, all right? You're right. But think about it. If it's not the size of it that's supposed to draw your attention, 
what else might draw your attention to the box? What's in it? It's the beauty of the box, right? It's not the, it's not the size of it that catches your attention. What catches the attention when you see the ark? It's the, it's, because listen how it's described. So forget this, now it's made of, okay, first of all, it's made of acacia wood. We'll get to that in a second. If I forget to come back to that, raise your hand, say, Jason, you didn't come back to that. But notice what it says in verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. Okay, so if it, bling, right? I mean, y'all like, like bling. Well, guess what? When you see this box, guess what's going to stand out to you? This thing is covered with gold inside and out. It's going to be gleaming. It's going to be shining. You're going to go, oh, that is the nicest box I've ever seen. And it's overlaid with gold because that's what's supposed to grab your attention, not the size of it, but what it's made of. And I want you to notice that they overlay it with gold all around. Why didn't they build it completely out of gold? Well, it's too heavy. Yeah, you're thinking, Pratt, you're with Terry. Uh, see, Miss Linda's in the moving crew. They know it's got to be portable. That may be true. It would be awfully heavy. Could there be significance to the fact that it was made of wood and then covered in gold? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay, just so you know, let, let me, can I, can, I, can I ruin the story for you and just tell you the ending? The ark represents Jesus. In your notes, you need to write that down. The ark represents Jesus. So would there be any significance to it being made of wood and then covered in gold? How about the fact... It was small in size, but who? Marlene knows. Marlene, do you know? You heard her say it? Okay, so she's being shy now. I got you. Yeah, most theologians believe that the reference to acacia wood is actually a reflection of Jesus' humanity. You want to know why? Does anybody know anything about acacia wood? I mean, I don't because I don't do that stuff. Other people do. Acacia wood is known to be one of the strongest enduring woods that there is. In fact, it was viewed as being a wood that would not rot. Say that again. Oh, that's good to know. Say that again. Why you call it that? Don't <laughs> see that's that, I love that's what I love. That's what I love about the South. Why do you call it that? I don't know. We just came up with it. No, no, it just sounds good. But if it's made of a wood that does not rot and covered with gold, does that does that help you at all with Jesus? Because wood that doesn't rot, if it's supposed to be a reflection of Jesus' humanity, what's that telling you about Jesus? Sinless, no corruption, everlasting because why? His resurrection from the dead. Y'all catch what? 
in your Bible next to acacia wood, y'all need to be jotting this down because you need to understand that when you come back to this next time, it ain't just about, oh, we found some wood and put some gold on it. It's actually telling you about Jesus, that Jesus came as a human being and yet covered in gold. He was divine even though he was a human being. He was both at the same time. And there was no sin found in him. There was no corruption found in him. And he is eternal. He lasts because he resurrected from the dead. The ark was a picture of Jesus who was to come. And as they carry the ark around, they have a picture of the fact, wood covered in gold. Picture of humanity and divinity together. Keep going, keep going, here we go. He says in verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on the four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. And the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, just so you know, this is not the real ark. All right? This isn't it. It's a representation, and it's probably not even a good one, but I, it's, it's the one I found, okay? So here's the picture that you would have. You would have the, the, the ark actually had these feet on it. So the actual ark itself didn't sit on the ground. It had feet that would hold it up even if you sat it down. And it had rings that went attached to the feet with poles that went through them so that they could carry the ark around. And the, the, the poles were not to be taken out. They were to be left in. Even though they technically could be taken out, they weren't supposed to. You're supposed to keep them in at all times. I think that's God's way of saying make sure you keep them in there because it's for your own good. But these feet are where the poles would go through and they would use that to carry it. Why would that be significant? Why does that matter? Just so you know, like I've said before, if you see strange instructions, it's usually pointing you to Jesus. Why have rings and poles going through feet so you can carry it? Well, that may be, I mean, I get what you're saying. Maybe, I don't know for sure. If you have to put poles through, what is that telling you about the ark itself? Say that again. Why? How do you know that? You can't, you can't touch it. You're not allowed to touch the ark itself. That's why you had to have poles to carry it. Does anybody remember a story in the Bible about someone who accidentally touched it? Anybody remember his name? You should know it because it's a cautionary tale. Uzzah. Uzzah was helping carry the ark by the poles. Actually, no, he wasn't. You know what the story says? They actually started transporting the ark on a cart. Oops, God didn't say carried on a, on a cart. He said carry it by the poles. So guess what they probably did? Took the poles out, put it on a cart, and we're wheeling it around. Then all of a sudden, the cart takes a bad turn. The ark begins to slip and fall. Uzzah decides he's going to try and save the day. Puts his hands out to grab it. Dies. Poor Uzzah. He just... But it's not poor Uzzah because what the scriptures are telling us is that they had become careless with the ark. And to touch the ark was to... 
the, the sa- if the ark is a picture of the holiness and righteousness of God, guess what we as human beings cannot do? Touch. Why? Why can't we touch? Why can't we just grab the ark and pick it up and touch it? Why can't we do that? We're sinful. And because of our sin and God's holiness, there must be some type of separation. There must be some type of accommodation given so that we as sinners can actually be near God. And they see it every day as they pick it up to carry it. They realize we can't touch this thing. The, God, the word of God told them that they were to not do that, that there was a great caution in doing that. They, uh, we find out in, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God says they must not touch the holy things. Why? Because they were sinful. They couldn't touch the holiness and righteousness of God. And so even in the ark itself, you see the righteousness of God in how it was made. How precious it was. How it couldn't be touched but had to be carried with poles. Now I want to show you that we've seen God's righteousness. Now I want to show you God's mercy. Look at verse 16. He says, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. What was the testimony? Say that again. The Ten Words of God, right? The Ten Commandments that God had spoke to Moses and was going to give the people. What was God going to do? He was going to take the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments and he was going to write them down for them. Right? A permanent reminder of the covenant relationship between them and God and the obedience that God was requiring of them. We're told they're going to put that in the ark. Now, how many were there? Ten Commandments, how many, how many stones were, were they written on? You sure? You sure? You know what? I'll be honest with you. I didn't think about this until I was studying this past week. You ready for this? Exodus 34 tells us that there were two tablets of the testimony. And what we do as human beings is we just assume... Well, the two tablets must have been like commandments one through five were on one and commandments six through ten were on the other because you can't fit them all on one. Really? God can't fit ten commandments on one tablet? Has anybody ever thought? Because you've seen the movie, right? You've seen, you've seen, who was it? Who was in the movie? Charlton Heston, right? He's holding, the, he's holding them. And right, you got five written on one, five written on the other. You know that's probably not what it was. Does God really need to have a, an extra page just because he can't fit it all into one? Can't get a font small enough? What most likely was the case is that each tablet contained all ten. Because in ancient days when they would make a treaty, each side got a copy of it to know what their end of the bargain was. So when you have two tablets in the ark, you're not dealing with two tablets that contain ten commandments. What you're dealing with is two sets of Ten Commandments. Why? One was God's copy and one was the people's copy. It showed that they were in agreement with one another, this is what we're going to live by. 
You get what I'm saying? This is God saying, I'm together with you and we're both in the same boat. And these 10 commandments are going to be what bind us together. So we're told that the ark, which is God's presence with his people, which which is uh, telling us it's a shadow of Jesus to come. We're told the ark has the 10 commandments, the testimony inside of them. What might that tell us about Jesus? If the ark is supposed to represent Jesus and the testimony is included within the ark, what might that tell us about Jesus? Say that again. He did all that was required in the covenant. See, we all fail, but guess who didn't? You know why? Because Jesus was truth in the flesh. And he kept every bit of that covenant responsibility. And he was able alone to be our sacrifice. You know why? Because he was holding up both God's part and man's part. Why? Because he was both God and man, wood covered in gold. Jesus was the only one who could perfectly keep the commandments. You know why? Because he was God in the flesh. He is the one that Job said, oh, I wish that someone could grab God's hand and mine at the same time. Jesus was the one who, being God in the flesh, grabbed us and brought us to the Father. Now, go a little bit further, and I'm almost done. Can you believe it? It's like a Christmas miracle. What's the next thing we see? Verse 17, you shall make what? A mercy seat of pure gold. Did anybody notice that? This is a little different. Right, because the box itself was wood overlaid with gold. What is the mercy seat? Pure gold. And by the way, the mercy seat can be misunderstood many times because it's got the word seat in it in our English version. And so we think it's a place you sit down. But that's not actually what it means. The actual original Greek and Hebrew word that are used actually refer to cover. That it is the mercy cover or atonement cover that would sit on top of the ark as a lid. Well, what's God teaching us through that? He's teaching us his mercy because within the ark of the covenant is the testimony that the people of God continue to rebel against and continue to sin against. And yet on top of the ark itself, we find the atonement cover, the the picture of reconciliation, The picture of God covenanting with people that he would not cast them aside, but that they would be his people and he would be their God. And notice how it's described. It's described as being solid gold, precious, valuable. Not only that, we're told it's two cubits and a half lengthwise and a cubit and a half breadthwise. Anybody notice that's the exact same dimensions as the ark itself? He says, you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them. And and then he goes on to describe how they're to be positioned on top. So again, this isn't the real ark, so don't go, oh, that must be, it's just a, it's a representation. There would be two angels, two cherubim on each side, looking into the middle with their heads down, looking at the cover. Why would that be significant? Do you know the only other place we have up until Exodus 25 that mentions cherubim? Do you know where it's at? Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. And God puts them out of the garden. 
Does anybody know what he does with the entrance to the garden? He puts cherubim to guard the entrance so that man and woman cannot get back in. See, the cherubim were always pictured as guardians of holy places. Interesting that on the top of the mercy seat, the cover, would be two cherubim facing each other, wings outstretched, both looking down at the cover. Do you know what would happen on the mercy seat cover, on the atonement cover? One day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Does everybody know what that day is called? What was the one day a year called? Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. One day a year, the high priest, right, because the, the tabernacle was so sacred, so holy, that they could only go into certain parts at certain times and under certain instructions. And so they could go into the main temple area, the tabernacle area, but only one day a year could they go all the way in past the veil and go into the most holy of holy places. And that's where the ark would be kept, is separated from everyone else. And only one day a year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest go in. And what would the high priest do on that Day of Atonement? Why would he go in to the Holy of Holies and go to the ark? To make sacrifice for the people that God might forgive them for their sin. Do you know what the priest would do? They would sacrifice an animal for the priest and they would sacrifice an animal for the people. And the high priest would go in. And on the lid, in between the angel's wings outstretched, he would put seven dots of blood for the priests and seven dots of blood for the people. If he's putting dots of blood from the sacrifice on the top of the lid, what are the angels looking at? The angels have their eyes fixed down on the lid where the blood would be sprinkled. The picture of the redemption of God's people by the sacrifice of another in their place. And the angels are looking upon it. You know, I can't help be reminded of? First Peter tells us that with regards to salvation, the angels even long to look into that. See, redemption is something special for God's people. And even angels long to look into the redemption that is found in Christ. So as they put the sprinkled blood on top of the lid, the angels are focused their attention on that sacrifice and we're told God himself says he will dwell and he will meet with Moses right there in that spot. Not sitting on the ark, but above it. This is mercy. Because they don't deserve for God to meet with them. They've broken the covenant. They've, they've abused the mercy God's already given. But guess what God has found doing? Showing mercy to his people. Forgiving them. Right? Because the picture of the mercy seat is the picture of reconciliation. And how is one reconciled to God? How do you as a sinner become reconciled to God? Well, the atonement cover tells you. Blood must be spilled. To pay for it. I wonder how that might point us to Jesus.
Hebrews chapter 9. Remember I read it earlier? There's a reason why I read it. It's because it tells us exactly why this matters. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to point this out to you. Hebrews chapter, actually go to verse, uh, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, and then I'm done. The author of Hebrews is telling us about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and how it relates to Jesus Christ. And he says this in chapter 10, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, right? The picture of the priests in the temple area offering sacrifices daily. He says, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Uh-oh, there's a problem. I thought all we had to do was sacrifice animals and we're okay. But here the author of Hebrews says, the, an- the blood of animals will never be sufficient and completely to pay for sin. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why does this matter? Because the author of Hebrews is giving us a picture of what that temple looked like, what the tabernacle looked like. Once a year, the high priest would go in and he would offer sacrifice. Guess what they had to do the next year? Come back and do it again. Guess what they had to do next year? Come back and do it again. Guess what they had to do next year? Come back and do it again. Why? Because it was never enough to cover all their sin, including future sin. It only paid for what they had done up until that point. What they needed was a sacrifice from someone who would pay for all sin, not just present, but those even yet to come. So how is Jesus different? Verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Guess what the priests never did? In the tabernacle, in the temple area, they never sat down. You know why? More sacrifices had to be offered. But when Jesus sacrificed his own body, gave up his own life, we're told he sat down. Why? I believe it's because on the cross he said all you need to hear. It is finished. See, the ark was a picture of God's righteousness and our need for mercy because we were sinners. And what God did is on that, in that picture, he was pointing us to one day the true ark would come. The true one who would be God dwelling with his people. And while they carried the ark around so God would be with them, Jesus came so that God would be with them. Not in a box, but in human flesh. And what we see in Jesus is all that the ark was pointing to. So here's what I want to point out to you as we close. The reconciliation that was demonstrated by the blood being sprinkled on top of the atonement cover 
is actually pointing us to what Jesus would do. That if we're going to be reconciled to God, it must come from one who offers a sacrifice that can not only take away our sin, but can satisfy God's wrath against our sin. And Jesus did that in his own body. And so here's what we know. This reminds us, the ark reminds us, that our sin is real, and it separates us from God. There's a reason it was tucked away in the Holy of Holies. There was a reason why it had to be carried with poles. It's because men were sinful and could not touch holy things. The ark reminded us that someone had to pay for sin. In the Old Testament, God gave temporary covering through the blood of animals. But those were all just a picture preparing us for the fact that one day Jesus would come and he would give a sacrifice that would be once and for all. And that blood was necessary for reconciliation with God. In order to be reconciled to God, someone had to give their blood. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. The ark was pointing to one day God would send true reconciliation through his son Jesus who would die, sprinkle his own blood for atonement so that we might be forgiven for all our sin. And only Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice because he is the only one who is both God And man, he's the only one who lived righteously and perfectly and was completely obedient to the will of God. And he was the only one who could be man's representative and not fail. Jesus is the all-sufficient sacrifice, and no one else can pay for our sin, including us. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that it's only by the sacrifice of Jesus that we can truly be reconciled. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross... If we trust in him, guess what's true of us? We are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We are finally able to have the forgiveness we've longed for. And we can actually dwell with God forever. All of this being pointed to all those years before Jesus would ever walk the earth. To show us there had to be someone greater. There had to be a greater Moses. There had to be a greater Exodus. There had to be a greater deliverance. And Jesus was that promised one. What I want for everyone in the room today is, first of all, don't go looking for this. Don't be Indiana Jones. You're not going to find it. You know why? Because it ain't about the box. Whoever said that they would worship it, you're right, right? If if we had the box today, we'd all be making pilgrimages to it and looking at it, staring at it. But there's a reason why we don't see it. There's a reason why we don't have the ark anymore. You know why? We have Jesus now. We don't need the box. We have Christ himself. And oh, that is glorious because you know what? I don't have to trek all the way across to Europe or the Middle East to go find Jesus. He sought me. And he sought you, that you might trust that his sacrifice, his sprinkling of blood was what you need.
to be reconciled to God. No amount of good work can ever accomplish what Jesus has already done on your behalf. I urge every one of you in the room, put your trust and faith in Christ who died once so that you might be forgiven of all your sin. And Christians, we have a beautiful story to tell, don't we? We have a beautiful story to tell a world that's looking for forgiveness, looking for hope, looking for joy, looking for satisfaction. We're able to tell them we know exactly where to find that. It's in the only God-man who's ever existed. It's the one who was able to grab God's hand and our hand at the same time. Put your trust and joy in him alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. And I thank you for your word that points us to the beautiful truth that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. There is no other rescuer. It is simply him. And God, I thank you that you give us pictures in the Old Testament that help us to realize that Jesus is the one that we need. And Father, I thank you that you show us these pictures, that you were willing to dwell with people, God, that that even though you were righteous and holy and perfect, you still desired to dwell with people like us. And Father, we can't ever fathom why that is. We can simply say thank you because we don't deserve it and yet we are recipients of it this morning. Father, I pray what you'll do in this place is kindle within every heart in this room a love for Jesus, an adoration of him, a praise of him. God, if they've never been worshiping him, may they turn and worship him today. God, may everybody in this room realize that Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us to you. He is the only one that can bring peace between sinners like us and a holy God like you. We give you praise this morning because you accomplished this for us. God, I pray that if there's people here this morning who are trying to live good enough lives in the hope that that will be enough, Father, I pray you'll help them to see that someone had to pay for sin. And God, if we're not trusting in Jesus, then the punishment for our sin remains on us. But thankfully, because of your mercy displayed, we are able to find redemption and freedom from sin and reconciliation with you because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He was perfect. He was the sacrifice we needed. May he be our boast today. May we put our trust completely in him. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who needs to do that, they will recognize their desperate need for Jesus and fall down before him and ask forgiveness and find forgiveness in Christ. And Father, help us as Christians to realize that this is no small thing that we get to dwell with you. God, that that you actually sent your spirit who dwells within us. God, you are with us every day. And that's not because of our goodness, it's because of your grace. God, may we be passionate to tell other people this good news, that we can be reconciled to you through the blood of Christ. May that be our boast, and may our joy be found in him. Father, I pray this morning that as we respond to you, you would help us to do so humbly, giving you praise and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.